You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Morning, everybody. That'll get your attention, won't it? (laughs) Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Kingsway. If you're watching at home online, this is officially our third and final, I may add one more warning, for the message. So if you're at home watching online, the reason I have to do this one last time is because later on down the road when you do the podcast, you skip all the rest of the service, so you've not heard the warning. The warning is, if you have never had the talk with your parents, if you are a parent and you've never had the talk with your kids, this is probably the message you may want to turn off, take your kids in the other room, listen to this later, and if you are here live in person right now, it's too late to take your kids into programming because of security. We shut those doors, you can't get in there, but you may want to step out unless you're ready. I remember the exact location where I was in the car. I remember it. I remember I was roughly 12 years old, and I remember I was in the car, and my dad was driving just two of us, and I was staring out the window doing my ADHD thing. I don't know, my brain was going a million miles an hour, and my dad says something like, you know, son, you're probably old enough now for us to have the talk, and I thought, oh, dear God, no, and I can only imagine what he was thinking. He's probably thinking the same thing. And I remember, and I literally went, no, dad, no, um, it's okay. We talked about it at school already in fifth grade. Now, I also had gone to school in the locker room and in the back of the school bus and with my friends, we were spending the night at each other's house. I've been to school many times, but I was thinking to myself, oh, please, I do not want to have this talk with my dad. And I'm sure my dad was thinking, oh, please, dear God, I do not want to have this talk with my son. And I'm amazed over and over and over again. How many of you have never had this talk, the talk? There's no more stalling I can do, parents. This is your last chance. Today, we're going to use words like sex and sexuality and intimacy, and we're going to talk about it. We are going to talk about it. And so maybe this is a great chance because I am amazed how many of you are not having this conversation with your kids. And here's the reality. They are going to school. Literally, for some of you, they are going to school, and they are learning about this all the time. The average age today that a, that a young boy uh, finds pornography on the internet is somewhere between 9 and 11 years old is the first time, and it's usually as innocent as innocent could be. He's scrolling for something for school, he's looking for something, and it pops up, and what happens is curiosity gets planted in his heart, and he has no idea what's happening next, but desire gets birth, and curiosity gets birth, and as he chases that, we already know what curiosity did to the cat, well, it'll do it to his soul too. And what we see nowadays, while it used to be a male problem for online things, roughly 30 to 40% of women, adult women, Christian women, are hooked on online pornography as well. This is not a sermon only about pornography. What I want to do today is stay focused on the central issues, and then we'll chase the bunny trails towards the end of the message of here's some ways to apply this, here's some things to think about. But here's this one message. This one message touches everybody. This one message impacts everybody because we are sexual beings. God created sex for a reason, for a purpose. And what I want to do is look at that right now. But before we go any further, can we just pray and invite God into the space? Because this is such a hard topic for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. My, my prayer throughout the series, but God, especially this message, is that you will help me to be full of grace and full of truth. So Father, I pray that your spirit would speak. God, that nobody in here would feel con- condemned. But God, where we need conviction, where we need correction, bring that, Father, bring that. And um, Lord, we need your spirit to lead us, to guide us. May your words come alive. God, help us to understand what we don't understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a student pastor for 10 years, (laughs) uh, I would often get asked this question by students. And the question was something like this, how far is too far? And I would honestly say, that's the wrong question, guys. The question you ought to be asking is, what is pleasing to the Lord? But that's not a great question either, to be honest, because it doesn't mean much in the moment when my heart is pounding, my adrenaline is going, and now I have to decide what to do. So the problem when you read your Bible is if you're looking for a verse that says a specific thing, you'll rarely ever find it. If you want to understand God, God is very understandable. You just have to want to know who he is. What I want to do today is really bore your mind. I really do. I just want to bore you to death. And I'm going to bore you to death for roughly 30 minutes while I walk you from the beginning of the Bible towards the end of the Bible. And we're going to hit many, many passages. We're only going to hit about a third of the Bible passages on this subject. And I want to to help you understand how to read your Bible. So when you can't find the verse that says whether you can or can't do the one thing, you'll at least have in your mind. But I remember Pastor Matt laying this foundation that I remember he applied this thing in this way because of these texts. And I'm hopeful that will help you. Okay, here we go. Let's jump right into the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. It says this. After God created everything, the planets, universe, stars, animals, trees, blah, 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 the Lord God said, 
It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Oh, this is so good. Like we can do an entire marriage series, and I have before on this one verse. But God made it, says Adam and Eve. But he didn't make Adam and Eve together like blah, there they are. He made Adam, then he made Eve, and that's this story, and it's so good. Because God made Adam, and Adam was alone, and he felt alone because God gave him a job. Adam, name the animals. So the lion comes up, and he notices the male lion has a lioness. And the elephant comes up, and he notices the male elephant has a female elephant. And the bear comes up, and the male bear has a female bear. And the unicorn comes up, and the male unicorn has a female unicorn. Okay, it's not really in the story, but I just want to see if you're with me, because everybody's anxious about this message, right? All right. But as he's naming the animals, he notices he doesn't have anybody. He's by himself. Now, I believe, and I could show this to you if I had more time, I believe that God did this for Adam's sake, because... All of you Adams in the room, the men in the room, those watching at home online, it is so easy for you to get wrapped up in your tasks that you forget that you need an Eve. Now, you don't forget it all the time. There's at least every once in a while when you're really feeling it in your body, you really want an Eve right now. By the way, that's in the system that God built for you. But God gave Adam Eve so that Adam wouldn't be alone. And Eves, you have felt this when he goes out to the garage to work on his car, when he goes over to the house that he renovated to work on that, when he goes golfing by himself, when he turns on the sports and tunes you out and you feel alone and disconnected, right? And what's, part of what's happening is God is placed in the heart of, very, of a lot of men, I'm not saying all men, but many, 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 many men, this desire for task, to get things done. And he's placed in the heart of women, not every woman, but many, 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 many women, the heart of connectivity. It's right there in the Genesis story. Has anybody else been amazed throughout the series how much we learn about us from just one chapter in the Bible? When you read it the way it was intended to be read, it's like, holy cow, there's so much good stuff in there. I have no idea what a holy cow has to do with this. The point is, this is what God was doing in the world. And he created these natural desires that would happen between these two. We're getting there. Notice it says, just a little bit later, in chapter 2, verse 20, I said B, because I'm just going to show you the second half. It said this, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. A little extra for your money today, a little extra for your time today. The word helper here, when it says God's going to make a helper, he's got no helper. The word here for helper is the exact same word used to describe the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Same word. Why is that? It's because when God made Adam and God made Eve, he was revealing a way that pointed to himself. In the same way that the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We also know that God is one, but God is not just one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are two families that God gave us in the world to reveal that to the world. The first one was the biological family, the man and the woman. In the same way that they are two, they would become one. And Eve, many ways, represents the Holy Spirit. Do you ever think about that? You ever read the way the Holy Spirit is and describe like John 14, 15, 16? The Holy Spirit speaks. Who speaks more in your relationship? Well, in my marriage, it might be different. But in most, in most marriages, the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit is the friend and the counselor. Oh, so good. You see it all over the place. And God, when we see him, he's powerful and he's righteous and he's just and he's angry and he's jealous. Does it sound a little bit more masculine? Again, we're building or painting big, broad strokes. The whole point is God is birthing a family that represents and reflects himself to the world. So God, in the very beginning, when he made everything, there's one particular thing he made. He made a garden. And it says he took the dirt of the earth and he made Adam and he placed Adam inside the garden. And that's important because that's not the way that God made Eve. And that'll be relevant for later in our message. Take a look, Genesis chapter two, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed the place with flesh. A few things. First of all, it's more than possible Adam had a permanent scar. He closed it up with flesh. He didn't say he closed up the flesh. So it's possible Adam had a permanent scar to remind himself where this thing came from. Secondly, and this is powerful, while Adam was asleep, God was meeting his needs. Do any of you have a hard time sleeping at night related to sexuality? There's perhaps no more lonely time of the day than right before you go to sleep. And part of it is, and this is really deep and philosophical, and I could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm gonna spend like two seconds, so I hope it's enough. And that is this. We have so much anxiety about FOMO, the fear of missing out. 
When my oldest was little, he would put him in bed at night, like many kids, he didn't want to go to bed, but he would say, Dad, I just hate that we have to sleep. Why do we have to sleep? Why do we have to waste so much of our life sleeping? And I said, buddy, it's not a waste. A good God knew that you needed rest and that he was still going to be at work, and he wants you to be able to relax and to remember that he alone is God. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and while Adam is sleeping and resting, God is meeting his needs. That's the principle of the Sabbath. How can I take a day off work? Because while you're resting, God will meet your needs. How can I take a year off of work? Year of Sabbath. Because while you are resting, God will meet your needs. How can I take a year of Jubilee following the year of Sabbath? Because while you are resting, God is going to meet your needs. And you need to know that and anchor your soul in that as it relates to sexuality. And I appreciate that. Thank you. So, verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib... Sorry, the scream jumped on me. And take it out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So he takes part of Adam, he makes Eve, and he brings her to Adam. Now imagine this, Adam's been asleep, a deep sleep, it says. It's probably some sort of like God-inspired anesthesia, right? You know what I'm talking about, that kind of sleep, and you wake up, and, and all of a sudden, Adam wakes up, and he's like, hey, lion, hey, unicorn, hey. Whoa, man, what is that, God? Now, you don't see this on the screen, but if you open your Bible, you'll actually see it. This very next part, go to the next verse. This very next part is actually a poem of Adam singing over Eve. And you'll notice it'll say this, and then it'll have the rest of this stuff in like lines like this. It'll be broke down like that. And the reason that it is, is because it's Hebrew poetry. The very first love song writer was not Bon Jovi. You're like, who? It was Adam. Now, men. Notice that Adam didn't yell at his wife, he didn't berate his wife, he didn't belittle his wife. The very first thing he did is he used his words to praise and make his wife feel beautiful. It's fascinating when you read the book Songs of Solomon, which is a love story between two people. She speaks first, she speaks last, she speaks most, but when they're being intimate, the one chapter where it's defining their intimacy, he speaks the most, and he stops, starts at the top of her head, and he goes all the way down her body and talks about how beautiful she is. And it's graphic. We've done that series before. It is very graphic if you understand Hebrew poetry. He's singing a love song over his bride, and every woman in the world's like, I already love this guy. He's amazing. Well, he loves her too because the lion and the unicorn and the bear didn't look real good. And he's going, wow. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. And the whole idea here is the two are separate, but they're not that separate, are they? They are one. In fact, verse 24, it says, and that is why a man leaves his father and his mother is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So powerful. There's so much to say. If I were doing a series on manhood, here's a couple quick points that I would make, a couple quick hits. Notice this, that God says the man will leave his father and mother. It doesn't say a woman will leave hers. That doesn't mean a woman doesn't leave her home, but I'm telling you, because women are the more relational beings, she will naturally, typically be more connected to her family than you are. But there's a point, men, where you are supposed to grow up, move on from your parents, get a job, provide, protect, and take care of your family. And it's right there in the scriptures. That doesn't mean there aren't other ways for you to do this. In the last, last week we did the value of life. I did a podcast with um, a lady in our church named Miriam Krober. Her husband Kyle's on staff. And for a long time it made sense for their family because she's an OBGYN. It made sense for him to be the stay-at-home dad. And I had a really masculine view of scripture. And he helped me see there are many ways for you to flesh this out. But he was still the lover and the leader of his home, of his wife and his children, even though she's the one because she made more money going to work. There are many ways to do this. But to leave your father and mother and become the leader of your home, this is why God built marriage. And oh, by the way, this is why God built sex. When it says the two shall become one flesh, have you ever noticed that the male part and the female part just go together? I know, right? You're like, wow, pastor, that was profound. You're welcome. It was designed by God that way. But have you also noticed that when they go together, it's actually a lot of fun? Okay, why is that so funny? (laughs) We never expected our pastor to say that. (laughs) That's the point. What is the purpose for sex? Well, there's two major purposes. One is obviously procreation, to make babies. God told Adam and Eve, hey, these lions and these tigers and these bears, 
they're going to make more. You too. In fact, he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's exactly what he means. Adam, Eve, become one flesh and make more image bearers. So the first purpose of sex is to procreate. And if sex can't procreate, it might tell us, we'll get to this later, it might tell us this wasn't what it was designed for. But the other thing that we know sex is designed for is to bring the two together. There's something that happens in that very moment that is unlike anything else. A couple can and probably should share a bank account. It's part of becoming one. A couple probably should share a house. It's part of becoming one. And bills, it's part of becoming one. But there's one moment and only one moment designed by God so that the two separate people literally in this moment become one. I can't tell where one starts and the other one stops. They are literally one. And it's because in this moment and all of the emotion and all of the feeling that comes with it is intended in some way to represent the joy, the pleasure, the euphoria that God experiences all the time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And do not make that perverse. None of this stuff is perverse. Sin hasn't entered the picture yet. That's the next chapter. In this part of the story, we're just celebrating the goodness of God and the way that he made us. Praise Jesus. So here, I want to summarize everything in case you get nothing else out of today and you're already ready to tune out. Here you go. This is the summary, all right? The biblical ethic for marriage and sex is one man and one woman for life. That's why you hear in weddings, till death do us part. And at that point, the bond of the two becoming one, one has been removed, and now the other could move on and become one again with another person. This is why, and we're not getting into this today right now, just real quick, this is why when Jesus asked the question, so in the Hebrew culture, if, if a man dies, a woman was supposed to marry a brother, and if that guy died, go to the next brother until she had a kid. So what if this one woman has like five husbands and they kept dying, and by the way, why would you want to keep marrying her? But anyway, they keep dying, and when she gets to heaven, which one will she be married to? And Jesus says, you don't understand. See, the problem is you don't understand the Bible. You don't, you don't read it for what it's supposed to be. There will be no giving of marriage in heaven. This is an earthly gift from God. An earthly gift. And notice, when the gift is used right, Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Have you ever noticed how much shame we carry around related to sexuality? Have you ever noticed that? When was the last time you were naked in front of somebody and felt no shame? I get naked in front of myself and I feel ashamed. <laughs> yeah, <I'm all. sighs> I gotta work on it. Forty's been hard, let me tell you. <laughs> and I'm making a joke to make light of it, but something went wrong, didn't it? I mean, Adam and Eve are running around. By the way, I didn't say this last service, but as soon as Adam and Eve sin, who covers their bodies? Well, first they do. They go get fig leaves. Why is it as soon as sin enters the picture and shame with it, all of a sudden they're hiding themselves? I mean, two, two minutes ago they were naked and had no shame, and now they're naked and have lots of shame. And then God shows up and he kills an animal, which, by the way, points us to Jesus later, and he covers their bodies with the skin of the animal. And it's a way for now, because now that sin has entered the picture, there's going to be shame. There's not supposed to be, but there is, because now we are hyper aware that we don't measure up. And here's what's happened as it relates to sexuality. Either the ways that we have um, taken God's word out of context and used sex in something other than what he designed it for, or the ways that other people have done that to us through sexual abuse and molestation, we carry shame around. And I hear all the time from people who feel dirty and not good enough before God, but that was never the way God intended it. I'm gonna talk by the end of what to do with that, but that was not how God intended it. What did God intend sex for? God intended sex to be a good gift from a good God for his good purposes. It's a good gift from a good God for his good purposes. That doesn't mean it'll always be what God wanted it to be because we don't live in the garden anymore. So yes, sometimes it could be hard and frustrating and painful and lonely and a whole slew of other words and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it wasn't the original design. What I want to do is take you right from the Old Testament into the New Testament so that you don't think I'm just making this up for myself, okay? The way this works, and I, again, this is like Bible big picture 101, but Jesus studied the same Bible you have, except for it was just the Old Testament. 
He studied the history and the prophets and what we call the Torah, the first five books written by Moses. And he read those and he studied those. And as he studied them over and over and over again, he comes back to these first two chapters over and over and over again. And part of the reason that he does is because this is the way things looked before sin ruined everything. And so Jesus gets approached in Mark chapter 10 and he's asked a question about divorce. And when he's answering the question about divorce, I want you to read here exactly what he says and what he's referring to. It'll sound familiar to you. Ready? Mark chapter 10, verse six says this. But at the beginning, Jesus answered, of creation, God made them male and female. Sound familiar? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Sound familiar? And the two will become one flesh. What is he quoting here? Genesis chapter two. And then he goes on. He says, they are no longer two but one flesh. And then he makes this profound application in verse nine. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now he's asked this question about divorce because in Jesus' day, what happened was way back in the Exodus story, Moses is dealing with real life problems and he's trying to figure out how to help people in their real life problems. And so Moses hands out what's called a certificate of divorce. And essentially, by the time we get to this, the rabbis have said that a man can leave a woman for almost, there's actually two camps, but one of them says a man can leave a woman for almost any reason. If she displeases him in any way, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a woman. Have you ever displeased your husband? The best marriage in here. Have you ever displeased your husband? My wife hasn't, but I can't imagine any other marriage in the world where that's been the case. Now imagine the burden that the women feel. You displease him at all, he get his righteous certificate and he'll blame it on Moses and feel like he's off the hook. And oh, by the way, ladies, it's a little extra for your time today. This is why I say you cannot, one of the many reasons, I'll get to the rest, you cannot live with him before marriage. Because it's the proverbial cake and eating it too. He will have no motivation to be responsible for you. He'll have no motivation to get a job and care for you. He'll have no motivation to meet your needs. And by the way, if you don't please him, he'll leave. Now, he may not, you might actually be with the guy who will one day be your husband, but what's his motivation? You've removed all of the biblical motivation, all the things that God inserted into the system for him to do to win your heart, to prove himself valuable and somebody worthy of spending the rest of your life with. And sometimes we have to start telling ourselves the truth and not the lie about who this person is and their past behavior as the best predictor of their future realities. Man, I know this is hard stuff, okay? I know it. Stick with me, because there's a lot of really good stuff here. And we're going to get into divorce, and we're going to get into all that, but let's just keep going down this path. Paul then builds on what Jesus says, and he says something really weird and radical. Let's unpack it for a second. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What in the world does sex have to do with Jesus? Like, doesn't that weird anybody out? If you were to just pick up Corinthians and read that, you'd be like, Paul, this is why I don't read my Bible because I don't know what you're talking about. Except for, again, Paul's reading Genesis. Paul knows what Jesus said. He was friends with Peter and John and all of the disciples and apostles. He heard what Jesus said. He's putting it together and he's building a sexual ethic for the church in Corinth. You should know this about the church in Corinth. So Corinth was a sea city. And what would happen is people would leave one town. They'd gather all these goods. They'd take a boat, travel all the way around the known world to Corinth and they'd take all their goods. So now when these seamen came into port, they had goods to sell. Now they've made a lot of money and they've been at sea and so they're lonely with lots of money. Guess what that led to? Well, Corinth was famous for they had this, uh, um, one of the seven wonders of the world, I believe it was, they had a, a temple on the top of the hill in Corinth and I think it was Artemis, but don't quote me on that part and they would go up there and they were temple prostitutes and the temple prostitutes worked the temple. So these, it came away for them to make money. People would come into port. They have all these money. They're lonely. They'd go up. They'd sleep with the prostitutes. They'd pay for it. And when business was slow because no new ships were coming into port, the ladies would come down out of the temple and they would go into the city and they would look for people to sleep with. And Paul is writing this to them. He's saying, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And you're still going, I don't get it. Well, this word sexual immorality here, it's actually the Greek word pornaya. Now, when you're understanding a Greek word, you don't understand it from the English, meaning this. We get many English words from Greek and Latin words, but you don't interpret the Greek word from English, you interpret the English word from Greek. I don't know if that made sense. 
So when you hear pornaya here, it doesn't mean a visual image like on a TV screen or a phone. What it means is a casting off of sexual purity, promiscuity of any or every type. And one of the old words, the word I heard when I was in like maybe late high school is fornication. And I went, I don't even know what that means. I didn't know what it means. I literally probably didn't learn what it meant until I was in my mid-20s. And so you probably heard the word too, especially if you King James or ESV or NASB, the Bible, and you go, great, I have no idea what God wants for my life. So the NIV, like, inserts that in there, but I still don't know what that means either. Here's why. Pornaya is what we call a junk drawer word. Do you guys have a junk drawer? Do you ever, like, you're coming around your house and you got this, like, little screwdriver, or you got this hairband, or you got this, I don't know, little piece of paper or a stapler or an eraser or whatever, and you're like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. I don't really want to create a drawer dedicated to that one screwdriver, so I'm just going to throw all that stuff in the junk drawer. That's that word. Like, a whole bunch of stuff just kind of gets thrown into the drawer. So it's like one day you're like, oh, man, where's that one thing for that one thing? Oh, yeah, it's in that drawer. That's that word. That's that word. Because it refers to kind of any general ethic of sexuality that's outside of God's intended purchase, purchase, purpose, which is one man, one woman in marriage for life. Does that make sense? So when you see the phrase in the NIV, sexual immorality, you need to know it stands for anything and everything that fits into that. Adultery, pornography, Lusting after somebody who's not your spouse? Flirting with somebody who's not your spouse? Inappropriate advances? Prostitution? Homosexual behavior? Lesbian behavior? And there's a whole slew. I mean, it's hard to put everything into one thing, but that's kind of what that word is. It's anything outside of the way that God designed it. But then it leads us to another question. Why in the world does God even care what I do with my body? I mean, in America, we're told, right, your, it's your body. You do what you want with it. Now, we don't actually believe that, by the way. And one of the great proofs is, as soon as somebody says, as soon as somebody's in trouble for raping somebody else, don't we get angry? But if it's my body and I can do what I want with it. So then we say, well, it's my body and I can do what I want with it as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But here's the problem with that. It always hurts somebody else. It always hurts God. But why? When I was being raised, essentially what we were told is the reason why is because God is a creator of all things. And so therefore God makes the rules and God's an old fuddy-duddy and he doesn't want you to have any fun. So, hmm. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that God is a good God and he designed sex for joy and for procreation in marriage. And he wants you to experience all the joys of life, but he has put things in boundaries. He has made things so that you can enjoy them in the way they were intended. And by the way, if this were today's sermon, I could give you like 10 off the top of my head. Like, it's like this and it's like this, but we're going to get sidetracked if I start going down that road because you're going to say, Pastor, what do you mean? And now it's time to unpack it. But everything is here for our enjoyment when it's used in the right way and the right purpose. So why does God care what I do with my body? Because God loves you and he's a good God. And he designed you for a specific purpose, his purposes. And what went wrong in the garden in chapter three of Genesis, which you didn't read, is that Adam and Eve didn't want God to be God. They wanted to be God of their own lives, little g God. They didn't want to follow after him. They didn't want to obey him. So they did what they wanted and it's been bringing evil and brokenness into this world ever since. So what, what do we do about it? Well, I discovered this this week, and I think it's pretty stinking cool, but when Jesus was hanging on the cross with his hands pierced and his feet pierced and a crown of thorns on his head, right as he died, he's got two people beside him, two thieves, and they're still alive. And the way you die in crucifixion, if you hang there long enough, is you'll run out of energy or strength to lift yourself up and to breathe. And so every time you let go, you hang there and your lungs begin to asphyxiate. You basically suffocate to death. And so these thieves are still fighting to breathe. It's extremely excruciating. That's where the word crucifixion comes from, is excruciating. I should say that the other way around. Excruciating comes from. 
But finally, because it's becoming sundown and the Sabbath and the Passover is the next day, they've got to get these guys off the cross in order to honor the Jewish feasts. They come up and they notice that this guy is still fighting and so they break his legs so that he'll fall down and not be able to breathe anymore. And they come over to this guy and he's same thing, so they break his legs so he'll fall down and not be able to breathe anymore. But when they come to Jesus, he's hanging there limp. And so they find out if he's dead by doing this. And they literally pierce his side and blood and water flows out. And you say, well, why is that relevant? It's relevant because of this. Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, pastor, I don't get it. In Genesis, God pulled out of Adam part of himself from his side and he made a bride. Do you see it? And on the cross, God said, I love you so much no matter what you've done or who you've been with or how many times or how far you've gone, I love you so much, I will give my one and only son and out of his side, I will now bring a bride. Man, I saw that this week, and that just floored me right there. Humbled me, stopped me in my tracks. Because God desires for you to be one with him. Remember, in heaven, there'll be no giving of marriage. Marriage is an example on earth for loneliness, for joy, for happiness, for pleasure, for us to experience God while here. But when we're there, we won't need marriage because we'll have Jesus. We'll have God himself dwelling with us again, among us again. I don't know exactly what it's gonna look like. I only know that this is what the Bible says over and over and over again. So marriage here is a gift. It can be a gift. It can be stressful and frustrating and irritating when we take these things and we abuse them and we don't live love with the people that we've committed our lives to. But that wasn't what God intended for. God intended for it to be a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, let me just show it to you. Paul goes on, 1 Corinthians 6. He actually says this. You just have to understand the biblical language. I promise I'm not making this stuff up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Remember, he's talking to the church in Corinth. But don't miss what he's saying because when I was a teenager and I wanted to know how far was too far, here's what I said. Well, I've never slept with a prostitute, so he must not mean me and my girlfriend. Look at the next verse. Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. This is not about prostitution. This is about two becoming one. And when do they become one? In the act of intimacy. It was a gift from God for a purpose. And that's why he goes on in the next verse. He says, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. In other words, Jesus died to make you one with God. So therefore, honor God with your body. That's his point. You are his. Notice the connections. He says to the husband and the wife, Paul does, I think it's in the very next chapter, chapter seven. He says, wives, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. Husbands, your body's not your own. It belongs to your wife. By the way, this may seem stupid to you, but this is why when I wanted a tattoo, the first person I went to is my wife and said, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. How do you feel about that? And some people go, that's stupid, it's your body. No, it's not. Over 21 years ago, I got married to her. It's her body too. Play that out, like a million ways you could play that out. But what do I do now? Let's just be really practical in our last minute and a half that's gonna be more like 10 and a half, okay? So here we go. Number one, and this is really simple, but it's really hard. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee, run away. Your, your example biblically here is um, Joseph in Genesis. I believe it's right around chapter 32, might be in the mid-20s. I'm terrible at that. But Joseph, he, uh, he is working for a guy named Potiphar. He's the second highest in command in, in Egypt. 
And Joseph is the head of the household. He's a slave, but he's the head. And Potiphar's wife starts looking at him going, mm, that's a nice piece of meat. And one day they get alone and she tries to seduce him. And Joseph says, no, I would never do this to my God. Notice he doesn't say to Potiphar. I find that fascinating. Because you can rationalize all the time what you do to another human being. You cannot rationalize what you do to God. See, what will happen throughout this, as you start to apply these principles, Satan will start to get in, or you'll read websites or articles, or you hear somebody else say, well, it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that, because, and all you need to do is get on your knees before God and say, God, if this is really okay, then I want you to give me freedom, and if you don't feel freedom, you should probably assume that's not from God. That's a good, just general rule. It's not always true, good general rule. Then check in with your pastor, and I'll help free you of any legalism that might be in your heart, Okay. But Joseph, when he's being seduced, he runs. She grabs his cloak, his little undergarment thing around his waist, and he runs out. It's almost guaranteed he ran out naked. Now, he knew everybody's gonna see him naked, but he was so concerned with not being in the middle of the sin that he just got out of there, which is why this is exactly what Paul's talking about, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And you're going, what? What Paul's trying to get to is this one is different. Like all the other sins a person could commit, this one is unique. This one's different, and you know it. You know it, right? Have you ever noticed when you were dating somebody and you got sexually active and then that relationship broke up, how much that still sticks in your head and your heart? You remember when you had that one night stand or whatever and that person never called you the next day? Why did it hurt so bad? You've had other people not call you back and it didn't hurt nearly as bad. Why did that one hurt so bad? Because we all know it, but we don't wanna face it. The world is lying to you. The world is lying to you. They're telling you sex is no big deal. It's just an exchanging of fluids. It's just natural emotions. No, it's a gift from God intended to be used in a very specific way. That's why Paul goes on. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? God lives in you. You have received from God the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Years ago, I heard a pastor say, Satan can't literally attack Jesus. The closest he can get is through you and sexual sin. Because God is living in you and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and then you sin sexually and it's the one sin that is against your body. It's the closest he can get to literally crucifying Christ again. That shouldn't make you feel guilty. It should just make you understand the depth of the battle that we are in. We live in the most sex-saturated culture in the history of the world. When I was a kid, and I realized that was a couple decades ago now. Okay, four decades ago now. But when I was a kid, if you wanted to see pornographic images, you had to be willing to go in public to a CD movie theater, buy a ticket, sit in a room with other people in there, and watch. And therefore, very few people did it. And now, videos and images that are a thousand times more graphic, and including even illegal or used to be illegal, are accessible on your phone in the privacy of your own bedroom where nobody but you and Google or MSN will know what you're doing. And it's dangerous. And every study in the world shows just how dangerous it is. And I just don't have time to go into it in this message. But go to a website like covenanteyes.com. They have tons of data out there for you to look into, and you could see it for yourself. God desires for you to be sexually pure. So that's why my next piece of advice, and we're gonna look at a couple verses, and I have to be quick, is this. Don't buy the lies. Don't buy the lies. Don't sell what the enemy is selling. Don't buy what the enemy is selling. So let me just show you to you real quick a scripture. Again, this is a whole sermon. Romans chapter one. <clears throat> we're gonna start in verse 21. It says this. He's talking about the people in Rome. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So again, point here. Sometimes people who claim to be the smartest people in the room really aren't. They actually show that they're foolish by the way they live their life. 
Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And see, this is why sometimes we get things like this and we go, see, this is why I don't read my Bible because it makes no sense to me. Let me make it make sense to you. This is really not hard. All over the world, even today, there are people who worship idols. In fact, when I went to Taiwan to bring my son home, there was a Taoist temple right there. You go up and there are all kinds of images. Many of them were made of uh, ancestors, or people who were alive at one point, heroes of Taiwan or China or whatever it is. And people are taking food and money and all kinds of things and they're bowing down and they're literally uh, prostrating themselves. I said that wrong, prostrate, no, prostrating themselves. I always get that one wrong. Before these idols and one of them, one guy's like literally whipping himself to bleeding on his back. He's trying to get these idols to bless him. They have traded God for something made with the human hands. Whether it's birds and animals and reptiles or even human beings. They have decided, I'm not going to worship the God who made human beings or the God who made the birds and the animals or the reptiles. I'm not going to worship the God who made the trees and the stars. I'm going to worship the star, the tree, the reptile, the animal, or the human being instead. And then it says, verse 24, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the grading of their bodies with one another. In other words, once we turn our heart away from God, God always gives us what we want. And that's scary and terrifying because God says, fine, you want this, you don't want me, have it, but then have everything that comes with it. And what he does is he goes on to describe when we get what we want and it's not what God wants, it's so terribly painful. In the next verse, he says, they actually exchanged the truth of God, truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Again, for those of you who have been in the pornography world, okay, have you ever noticed how often the word worship is used even in the description of pornographic things? She worshiped his body, we worship her body, whatever it is. Have you ever noticed how often in the pornographic and R-rated world today, movies, TV shows, whatever it is, how often in the moment of intimacy, the name of Jesus or the word God is used? Have you ever thought about that? And the reason is because at the end of the day, this is about worship. Do I believe that God is God and do I trust him to meet my needs? And if I don't, then I'm going to go satisfy myself in something or someone else. And that's exactly what's happening. And Paul's saying, man, why in the world would we do this? And as God says, fine, have it, go at it. What happens next, verse 26 says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. It was common in Rome back in the day that, that these men, especially men who had resources, would buy little boys, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and would use them for sexual pleasure. What was common too in that day is the women, basically as the men started fulfilling their needs and, and seeking after these things, the women often would go ahead and do the same. They've actually found in some Roman cities these uh, underground pathways um, that would lead like from the library over to the bathhouse where all kinds of sexual immorality would happen. And it would appear that men would lie to their wives. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go down to the library and read a great book. And they would go under these underground tunnels and make their way over to the bathhouse where all kinds of immoral things would take place. Paul goes on, he says, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What exactly is he talking about? Well, we're not 100% sure the due penalty, but we think at least in one part, one of the ways that God tries to get our attention is through things like viruses and emotional and relational breakdown and pain. See, while God hands us over, there's always a system in place that is intended. If we'll let the pain sting enough, we'll go, maybe this isn't what God intended. Maybe I don't wanna lose one more wife. Maybe I don't want my family to be broken and not trust me. Maybe this isn't the way God meant for it to be and that pain is intended to point us back to God. But unfortunately, sometimes we harden our hearts and we say, God, never mind, I'm gonna keep doing it my way. We just keep feeling the weight of it over and over and over again. And sometimes somebody just wants to shake you and say, stop. It doesn't have to be this way. That's my last point, my last point. Let's pursue holy sexuality. Here's just a few quick pointers. Job says, really God, the man of the Bible, Job 31.1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. 
Job experienced a lot of pain in this life. If anybody could justify looking at a woman lustfully, it probably was Job. But Job didn't want to justify evil behavior, sinful behavior. He wanted to please God. So he said, I just went ahead and made a deal with my eyes. I'm not gonna do that. It'd be good for some of you to do that today. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And by the way, again, women are getting into this too. Don't buy the lies. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, and do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Just let that sink in for a minute, guys. What is at stake is eternity. I am not preaching a salvation by works. I'm not. I'll make sense of what he's saying, but just keep hearing it. Understand what he said. Wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God. So do not be deceived. He goes on, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor the adulterer, nor men who have sex with men, that doesn't leave out women. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And see, if you're sitting here right now and you've done any of these things before, you say, then I guess God doesn't love me and there's no place for me. But the very next verse, verse 11, Paul says, and that is what some of you were. You were. The people sitting in the church in Corinth were adulterers and idolaters and sexually immoral people. They were broken and experienced all the pain and they still came to Jesus and they said, I need you. And Paul's saying, look, the church is made up of people just like this, just like our church, by the way. I mean, imagine if I said right now, everybody raise your hand if you have sexual brokenness in your past. Please don't. But I can guarantee you'd be surprised by how many hands go up. Because this isn't a place, a place of condemnation. This is a place where we just want to take the truth of God's word and hold it up against the grace of Jesus Christ. Say, man, we all need a savior. All of us do. Every single one of us. And whether your issue is swindling or thieving or idolatry or adultery, whatever your issue is, you need Jesus. You need him. That's why Paul goes on and says, you were washed. We had a girl baptized last service. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Gift, baptism is another gift that God gave us. You ever notice that? It's a gift so that you know when you go into those waters, past, present, future, that God has washed away my sin and now all I need to do is rest in the name of Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. So church, listen, let me make a few couple points. Jesus goes to a woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight and when she's brought to him, either mostly naked or, or barely covered, he, he looks away, he diverts his eyes and he writes in the sand. I wanna encourage you, as images pop up and they will on your laptop, your phone, your TV or even in public, divert your eyes. Make a commitment to divert your eyes. Don't look on things that once led you into destruction. Look to God who leads you to life. Secondly, if there's anything hidden in the darkness, I want you to bring it into the light. If you need help, look, reach out, send an email. I may obviously not have time to reach out to everybody, talk to everybody, but I'll connect you with the pastor or staff. We'll get a resource. We'll help you, okay? I won't, I won't throw you under a bus. I'm not gonna send your email out to staff and elders. We will handle it with delicacy and, and prayer and carefully, but you ever notice when you pick up a rock, nothing good grows in the darkness, like mold and moss and all those insects, unless you're a zoologist, nobody wants to talk about or touch, like, ew, get that away from me. Nothing good grows in the darkness. Satan loves the darkness. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter three, I think it is, he says, expose the evil deeds of darkness. And John chapter three, Jesus says, people don't come into the light because they're afraid that God wants to expose them. God doesn't long to expose you or embarrass you or hurt you. He longs to set you free. He loves you loves you. The last thing I'll say, and this is, I just need to say this. Church, we have so confused us. The world is desperately looking for someone who will live this. It's part of what makes it so hard to vote for presidents all the time, doesn't it? We are desperately looking for someone who will be an example to us. And so we need more people who are going to say, you know what? I can't live with you before I'm married because it doesn't give this image to the world of who God is. And I'm not gonna sleep with you and we're not gonna mess around. We're not gonna justify. When I was in high school, my youth pastors called it petting. I have never done this to my wife that I'm aware of. I don't know what to call it. But I'm not gonna justify touching you until you have this on your finger and you've said I do. I'm not gonna rationalize. I'm not gonna explain it away. I'm not gonna say God doesn't care. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if I can't control my body, then it's time to get married. 
Not a year from now, not five years from now, right now. And if you need us to perform a private wedding ceremony so that you and your girlfriend or fiance or boyfriend or whatever it is can honor Jesus Christ, let's do that. And we'll throw a big party a year from now. And we'll call that the wedding. But don't play games with this. The world is looking for an example. I want to pray for you because this message is heavy and I've said so much content. I hope it makes sense. Go to kingswaychurch.org backslash the dash loop and you can find more resources for those of you who need help. Let's pray. God. There's a reason, God, that they write books called Every Man's Battle. Because in my 44 years of being alive, I've only met one man who said he didn't have this struggle or temptation. This is so real. It's part of who we are. It's one of the ways Satan has twisted everything. And God, I look around and there are so many women who are desperately looking for a man who will honor her and love her and cherish her the way Adam did his bride. There are broken marriages and relationships all over the room. And God, I pray that you would protect this message from being legalistic. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I just wanna preach the truth and then call us to Jesus because God, we need you. This has to be supernatural. We don't have the strength on our own. That's why we keep failing. We keep trying to do it on our own. We won't even invite other people into the struggle with us. We rationalize, we justify, we, we, we ignore, we hide. God, we need you. We need a savior. A savior not who could save us for eternity, but a savior who could change us now. We need a safe place to be real and vulnerable. God, we need, people are gonna look at us and say, get back in there and quit, quit quitting. God, we need you. God, would you right now redeem and restore and rebuild every man and woman who's struggling or has been wounded by sex in some way? God, take back what the enemy has stolen. I pray, God, I don't know why I'm just gonna pray. God, I pray right now for the, for the young men who were seen and shown images as a child and they've been struggling for years now to get free from the addiction. I'm praying for young women and young men right now who at some point were abused at the hands of a pervert God who, who abused them. God, I'm praying for broken marriages right now and they're broken partly in the bedroom and it's leading to all kinds of problems and there's no more intimacy and he has stopped singing love songs over her and she has stopped responding uh, softly and intimately with him. I pray, God, right now for broken marriages because one of them has cheated or is addicted to something online even if it's not known. God, may your grace come and wash over us and cleanse us and restore us and rebuild us, pull us out of Jesus' side and to make something beautiful out of us. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things. We believe as followers of Christ, if we're doing four things, we are doing what Jesus has asked us to do. If we're connecting with both God and others, if we're serving, if we're giving, and if we're inviting folks into a relationship with God as well, putting our arm around them and saying, hey, let me show you this Jesus that I have found. If you would like more information about how to do that in your life, I'd love to help out. Feel free to give me a call at 317-272-2222 here at the church, my extension's 2385, or you can always email me, alinch at kingswaychurch.org.